0: Father, we ask for your blessing on your word as we continue to go through it, finishing up a little bit in John chapter 7 and getting into John chapter 8. I pray that you would enlighten us, Lord, for the tasks which are ahead and for eternity as well. We know that your word has benefits not only for this life but for the life to come. So assist us in this endeavor, Lord, by the act of your Holy Spirit teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we left off. Anybody remember what feast was taking place in John chapter seven? Tabernacles, feast of Tabernacles. Anybody remember what month it was in? October. All right, that's good. That's good. Anybody remember what psalm is being quoted when they pour out the water? Psalm one eighteen. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, let us thrive. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you, Lord, from the house of the Lord. Or we bless you from the house of the Lord. And so that's what the priest would say. Now, I gave you all four of the last points there. The crowd was confused about Jesus, the Jews, and their cohorts accused Jesus. Those who believed would be infused with the Spirit by Jesus. And Jesus refused to be silent about who sent him and who he was in his being vocal. How vocal was he? Do You guys remember? Yeah. So let's put the scream, down there. scream. Yeah. He was at the top of his voice. There were hundreds of people there. He was getting the attention. Probably when the priests were pouring out the water, he said, I am the water of life. Right? So he is a huge distraction. If, if you had to get people to see, would you be willing to yell at the top of your voice so that they could get the gospel? Absolutely. So tell me this what are you guys willing to endure so that somebody gets the gospel? It's like the coast to Nelson. So you're willing to endure? Well, I I said she was. Then she said she turned it around that I have no patience to deal with people like her. Um, is it true? Well, intention. And then I said something, um, Jesus loves you. Um, That's patience. Patience is Jesus Christ. There you go. That's good. So she's being contentious. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but she had a seven year old little boy next to mm-hmm. her, and I said to her, Oh, gee, you know, your number one task and job should be to teach that little boy that there is a thought counter. My parents did when I was fine, I thank them for okay. it. Okay, so you're willing to endure opposition, verbal opposition. Okay, so if somebody tells you guys, don't give the gospel, what are you going to say? Okay, okay. <clears throat> well, in this, the last of this passage, we have Nicodemus, we have the people, several of them put their trust in Christ. Christ was screaming out the message of who he was, his own witnesses being the Messiah. And, of course, he was rejected by them. Now, getting into chapter 8. We have the story here of the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Now, what time of day is this? At dawn. I mean, the sun is just cracking over the Mount of Olives towards the temple mount area. Verse 4, and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one time, one at a time, the older one first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing still, or excuse me, the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then go. I've got to try to read tonight. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. So the setting is, it's just the break of dawn at the temple. These guys had abducted her during the middle of the night. Chances are, some speculate, they probably set up the act of adultery because the man wasn't there. And according to scripture, both the man and the woman are to be stoned, and we'll get that. I'll get to that in a moment but the first one there is God is merciful she never sought mercy and yet it was extended now God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous <clears throat> and he does so at his particular choosing and he has reasons for it we can never figure them out but this woman didn't turn to him and say, please, Lord, have mercy on me. At least we don't have it recorded in Scripture. It would be an argument from silence to say it was or it was not there. We don't want to make that mistake. All we can recognize from this is God is merciful, and it doesn't matter who she was. Secondly, the Jews thought that the law had no provision for mercy. Of course, the law says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 11, Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. And Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress must be put to death. So it was the job of the leaders to bring both, to stone them. And apparently they only wanted to grab this woman for the sake of accusing Jesus because if he said go ahead, stone her, fulfill the law, then the crowds would have probably rebelled because they were under the thumb of the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, and they knew that. And then if they said, well, let her go away, then not fulfilling the law, that's even worse. And Jesus, if he is the Messiah, he has to fulfill the law. But also in the law... Hosea chapter six verse six, it says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Matthew nine thirteen says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, or I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Matthew twelve seven says the same thing that God wants mercy. And if we have mercy, not sacrifice, we would know how to properly treat the innocent. The third point there is mercy is greater than judgment. James chapter two, verse thirteen says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's made more clear in the New Testament. In Matthew seven two says, For in the same way you judge others you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you so if you want to make a judgment in this particular passage it says do not judge lest you be judged with the same measure measure that you judge with he's not saying there's a moratorium in judgment he's just saying do it correctly i think a couple of weeks ago i touched on this he said don't judge hypocritically and that's what it talks about he goes on in chapter seven and talks about that making a hypocritical judgment And so we are supposed to extend mercy unless we want to be judged with the same measure that we judge others. So if we are guilty of some sin and we judge others, we cast dispersion on them. They say what a bad person they are. And if we have ever done the same thing, we're going to get the same judgment only from Christ. And so we want to make sure that we are always operating in the realm of mercy. Fourth, whenever possible, extend mercy instead of passing judgment. I'm just being a little redundant here for the purposes of having these notes before you. No matter how much you have been hurt personally, you're supposed to extend mercy. Now, mercy is not to be confused with forgiveness. Forgiveness entails the restoration of fellowship. Mercy does not mercy removes all judgment but may not restore relationship in order for restoration of fellowship or relationship to be enacted there must be repentance on the part of the violator otherwise it's not effectual there is no forgiveness there is no remission of sins there is no wiping away of the violation the violation still remains and so in order to open up a relationship two ways There has to be repentance on on the part of the violator. Mercy does not require repentance. Now, this woman, we don't know if she repented before Jesus or not. It's not recorded. All we are taught is there was no plea for it. And if there's no plea for it and it can be extended, we should extend it since mercy is greater than judgment. Now according to God's will, he has mercy on whomever he chooses. Romans nine fifteen says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so God just randomly, according to us, randomly, he chooses to have mercy. And so that's what we want to emulate. That's what we want to copy. Fifthly, mercy speaks more about the one who extends it than the one who receives it. it. speaks much more about the character of the individual who is able to say, even though you have harmed me in a great way, I'm going to choose to extend mercy to you. That means not put you under judgment. I'm going to allow you to continue as if nothing ever happened. Not that the relationship is restored because sometimes it's impossible to do so. Secondly, the world and its light. Jesus spoke again to the people and said, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus is the light of the world, and the light in reference to God is mentioned 13 times in the Gospel of John. And I didn't do this the first time it was mentioned, and I figured I'd do it here. Uh, These points, I think there are 10 of them. Jesus is the light and John 1 verse 4 says in him was life and that life was the light of men light is more powerful than darkness light shines in darkness and darkness does not overcome it in other words if there is a room filled with light you can't go in there with a dark flashlight and overcome the light with the dark flashlight the darkness will never leave the flashlight but if you're in a dark room the light overtakes the darkness the darkness is not able to overtake the light and so that's what jesus is representing he comes into the world and he is light and we cannot as being evil doers on the earth not that i'm saying we are evil doers we are declared righteous justified before god when we accept him but the world would seek to have the darkness cover him over but we know that is impossible. It cannot take place. And that's why light is more powerful than the darkness. John 1 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Another way to say it is, The light has not overcome it, and it cannot overcome it. Thirdly, John the Baptist was not the light because people thought he was. John 1 8 says, He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Fourth, Those who do evil hate the light. John 3.20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. What do people say in our society today if you don't agree with the lifestyle of the homosexual? You're a hater, right? They have co-opted what God says we're to hate and what the evil person does hate. They have just switched it around. They have tried to make it like the homosexual lifestyle is the light. It's the rainbow. It is all good. And anything opposed to that is hate. So they are co-opting just like they co-opted the rainbow. That's what Satan does. He's an imposter. He changes the language. And this will happen even more and more as we see the days grow more evil. Fifth, truth seekers dwell in the light. They become or are Christians. Whoever lives in the truth comes into the light. John 3.21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen clearly or plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So the word is plainly in the scripture there. In other words, we become enlightened. There is a lucidness, there is a clarity, there is a plainness of understanding. When God opens up our eyes and we see what's going on spiritually in the world, when we do not have Christ, we cannot see it. But when the people of the world look at the Christians, they think that the Christians are foolish. 1 Corinthians talks about that the wisdom of god is foolishness to the world and the wisdom of the world is foolishness to god when the people of the world come along they say we have this wisdom let's just go in this direction with this particular thought of this plan god says that is foolishness and we can see it so clearly how it lines up but the world cannot see it and trying to convince somebody in the world that it's different you might as well call a mountain into being you're not going to be able normally to accomplish that unless God is opening up their eyes Jesus is the only light there's none other besides Christ following Jesus is the only way to be in the light he claims exclusivity John 8 verse 12 when Jesus spoke again to the people he said I am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life 7 while Jesus was in the world he was the light of the world John 9 5 says while I am in the world I am the light of the world but number 8 there Christians are now the light or lights of the world in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14 Jesus himself said you are the light of the world which means the moniker that Jesus had he transferred to those in his church and we're not to put that light under a bushel we're to let that light shine and what happens when you let the light shine You're going to be called a hater. You're going to be called bad. You're going to be called somebody who is not to be listened to. The world is going to hate it because their evil deeds are exposed. And so you bring out the gospel. You say this is right or wrong. You're going to receive opposition if you do it right. Now, this doesn't mean we are, the word would be precocious. It doesn't mean we are talented articulate advanced intelligent on top of the world nobody's better than us on the contrary not many of you were noble not many of you were wise but god called us anyhow and it is the wisdom of god that is manifested in our weakness so the weaker we are before god and before the world the stronger god can be in us and you know that's the thing about growing older Uh, the older you get the more experience you have the more experience you have the more wisdom you can gain The more wisdom you can gain, the more God can use you as long as the individual is humble. And so that's the goal. So Christians are now the light of the world, or lights, nine. Without light, there is only ignorance in spiritual matters. John chapter 12, verse 35 says, Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little longer. Walk while you are in the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in dark or in the dark, does not know where he is going. Now, in three different versions, I put this down, but I'm just going to read two of them. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, it says, But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. You'll see at the end of this chapter, chapter 8, that... The Jews, the leaders of the Jews, could not understand what Jesus was talking about. And you'll see those questions come up. And the same thing happens unless God opens up their mind, and they have to be willing to open up their mind and heart to God. If people of the world are not open to that, they will never see it. And we might as well just close our mouths. Because at some point, it turns into casting your pearls before swine. Now, that's harsh. Who are you calling swine? It's the people who are unsaved. Now, if somebody who is unsaved and they read that scripture and they have no insight, they don't desire to be saved, are they going to be offended when it sees that if you cast your pearls before swine and they understand at least you're giving the gospel, giving the truth of God to those who are unsaved and they understand it says swine, you think they're going to be offended? They're going to be offended. But the same thing happens with the, the word, the, the light, Jesus Christ. You show that to the world and they get offended. They get put off. Number 10, trusting in the light makes you his child. Verse 36 says, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of the light. There's no other way to become a child of God except for trusting in Christ. And he is the light. He puts his light in you, and you become the light of the world. So he transfers it to us. God is the master over everything, but we are his hands, and we are his voice, and we are his eyes, and we are his lips while he is away from this place in bodily form. Thirdly, the witness of Christ. Verse 13, back in chapter 8, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, what testimony was Christ giving? You know, when he was before these Pharisees and all the people, what testimony? Do you guys have any thoughts on this? What testimony? What was he telling them repeatedly? What did he want them to understand? That he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. That God had sent them, the Father sent him, and that he always does the will of the Father. He kept on communicating this over and over and over. And the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, they could not stomach this. And they kept on asking him, are you the Christ? And he has some answers for that. So this testimony that was being given, it says later in Scripture, like in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And he said, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is at his crucifixion, before his crucifixion. He just says, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm telling you plainly, right? In another section, they ask him if he's the Messiah. And he says, if I tell you I am, you will not believe me. If I ask you if I'm the Messiah, you will not answer. And so the stubbornness of those guys who are there. And so that is the testimony that Christ has been given. Uh, but Peter, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus asked them, But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. This is in Mark chapter 8. This is long before he's on the road to the crucifixion. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, this is after they're making an attempt to kill him, after they know that, or he knows that they are going to reject him. Now, on this particular subject here, I'm looking at my time. Actually, that's in Luke chapter 22, verse 67 that I just gave you. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And verse 68 says, and if I ask you, you would not answer. And so there is the stubbornness of the people listed in Scripture. Now, he says, if he testifies about himself. Didn't I just read that to you? He says, "Um, here you are appearing as your own witness your testimony is not valid we understand from scripture it takes two or three witnesses to validate to validate a testimony right and he's saying or the pharisees are saying to him that you're standing alone on your testimony your testimony is not valid is christ standing alone in his testimony in john chapter 1 verse 7 it says he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. This is referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was testifying to the fact that Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah. And so he is not alone in his testimony. Also John chapter 1, verse 32... John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove remaining on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The Pharisees were listening to John the Baptist. They showed up at the Jordan River and they wanted to know what was going on with John the Baptist. Was he Messiah? Remember, they asked him several questions. Now in verse 14... It says there, I'd like you to look at this, and I'm going to have you to turn over to John chapter 5 in a second. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. You read that? I'm going to read it again. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. Now turn over to John chapter 5. And look at verse... If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Is there a problem here? Go back to verse 14. Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. John 5.31 If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. It's contradictory. Jesus is saying it himself, right? So is the Bible full of contradictions? Ah, that's good, yes. The Bible is not full of contradictions, which means there has to be something in there that we're not understanding. And this is the way that it works. When you read Scripture and there is a perceived contradiction our understanding lacks it is not that there is a contradiction we don't have enough information and so you have to get some more information now there's a couple of ways this can be handled I can just tell you what it is right? and you'll say oh okay or since there is no private interpretation I can break you guys into groups of five or six and say, figure it out by the Spirit of God. When I've seen that happen, the people just get thrilled when they get the answer. They go, yeah, that's it. They, they actually are able to latch onto it and say, wow, the Holy Spirit was able to deliver to us understanding. Because you're trusting in Him for it. Now, I'm going to give you the chance to do that or you want me to just tell you? We don't have an upper window where somebody can fall out. I can continue. Okay. Somebody want, we want to take a shot at it? Go ahead. spirit has given you understanding that's exactly what it means he's saying i am not standing alone by myself testifying alone by myself in what we just read jesus is there saying the father also testifies about me and we have john the baptist we have i listed uh jump ahead to number two your point there see number two other witnesses for christ are The miracles, John the Baptist, the word of God, and the spirit of God. That doesn't mention all the disciples. The word of God can also be all the prophets. That is recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The other verses that are there... Uh, John chapter 10 verse 38 says, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So you have the miracles, you have John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 6, and we already read that. You also have in John chapter 15 verse 26, when the counselor comes whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And so literally how, how many witnesses did Jesus appear to at one time 500 in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 it says that it doesn't mean he appeared only to 500 it just means at one time there was 500 he could have appeared to thousands over the time that he was still here on earth before he ascended to the father so well done Karen well done going back to number one there uh, first verse 15 it says you judge by human standards i pass judgment on no one but if i do judge my decisions are right because i'm not alone i stand with the father who sent me in your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid i am one who testifies for myself my other witness is the father who sent me and i didn't even list that one in number two the point number two there the father is a witness uh, if you turned in your Bible, somebody want to turn in their Bible and open up to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. I think it's verse 8. Somebody want to turn there and open up and read that out loud, nice and loud, so it gets picked up on the mic. Now, I think it's verse 8. Who's speaking there? It's the Father. And the Father is calling the Son God. So we have a direct quote from God the Father that's listed there. So he is also a witness. And so in these contexts uh, that we have in the Scripture, the the question I just gave you, uh, the seeming contradiction between John 8.14 and John 5.31, all you have to do is read the context Uh, As they say in one ministry, never read a verse, which means you want to read three to five verses before, three to five verses after. And, of course, we have the answer here in verse 18. My other witness is the Father. So he is declaring that he's not being a witness all by himself. So, number one there, Jesus' testimony about being the Messiah is valid because there are two witnesses. Jesus and the Father are the two witnesses. thirdly jewish leaders lacked they did not know god the father verse 19 reads then they asked him where is your father you do not know me or my father jesus replied if you knew me you would know my father also he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offering was put yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come Going on, number four there, the Jewish leaders were condemned by Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 21, it reads, Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? See, they're totally dumbfounded. Like, we don't understand what you're talking about. They're probably getting frustrated and more confused. But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. Now in the NIV, I don't like that they do this. They put in the brackets there, if you're reading it, the one I claim to be. That is not the understanding, really, a good understanding of the passage. He is quoting the, you know, I say it, and me in the Greek which is the same phrase that was used in the burning bush i am that i am so when jesus said that i told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that i am and the jews knew exactly what he was saying they at this point they could have fried an egg on their head and they were so upset so he condemns them by saying, you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. You are from below. You, your father is Satan. And he says, and you will die in your sin if you do not believe that I am. He's saying to them, if you do not believe that I am God, is what he's saying. And they knew that. Some people say, well, Jesus never said that he was God. Oh, to the Jews, they understood this. By the end of the chapter, they want to kill him again. Verse 5, whoever wants to be saved must believe that Jesus is Messiah. That's the point just made in verse 24. Verse 25, who are you, they asked, just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, not I am the one I claim to be, that I am, that I am God, and that I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me, Is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases Him. If you were in a crowd, and some guy says, "I'm God," what would you think? You, in this day and age, you'd think you are crazy, and we're calling Mesa Vista, and they're coming and getting you at least for seventy-two hours, right? But if they were expecting the Messiah if the forerunner John the Baptist comes and says this guy's the Messiah he's the one they heard that they already knew that Peter knew that he was the Christ right? I just read it to you out of the Gospel of Mark other people knew that he was the Christ he is claiming I am I am that I am is what he's saying there and if that's the case what are these people my mind would have been blown I would have gone no way, right? And he would have gone, way. That's what he would have said. He is the way, and he, would have made, he made this so clearly known to them. But once he found out that, once he knew that they were going to try to kill him, he, it's like he toyed with them a little bit. Boom, here's a miracle. Now what do you think, huh? And, and they would have to have said, you are the Christ. Nicodemus was getting it. He was the one in the last chapter. We see that, you know, do you condemn a man before you listen to him? No, we don't do that. Or maybe it's in this chapter here. And so Nicodemus, we find out that he got the body of Jesus Christ. I believe he's a believer. I believe we'll see old Nicodemus up in heaven. He's going to be there. He's one of, I believe, the many Jews that turned to Christ even during this time. Going on. Verse 30, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. What if it read, if you don't hold to my teaching, you are not my disciple? Is that the same thing? The scripture here says that Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. What if it read, if you do not hold to my teaching, you are not my disciple? Is that the same thing? Let me ask you something. Did Jesus tell us to get saved or did Jesus tell us to become his disciples? That's right. Did Scripture ever say that discipleship or disciples came first and then the name Christian came later? Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Were they called Christians before that? So Jesus called us to become disciples. Now this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. I will ask you a question. Can a person be a Christian and not be a disciple? Now you might have opinions about this. So can a person be a disciple and not be a Christian? No, it's not possible. If you're a disciple, you are a Christian. Is there a a question whether or not a person can be a Christian and not a disciple? Does Scripture say, if you love me, keep my commands, right? And if you love me, I gave you a quote about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And that was, if you are a disciple, you will be obedient. If you are not a disciple, you will not be obedient. Now that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let me read you something. This is from Got Questions. A true Christian, and not one in name only, will have to be a disciple of Christ as well. That is, he has counted the cost and has totally committed his life to following Jesus. He accepts the call to sacrifice and follows wherever the Lord leads. The Christian disciple completely adheres to the teaching of Jesus, makes Christ his number one priority, and lives accordingly. He is actively involved in making other Christian disciples. According to Matthew chapter 28, the imperative is given. The command, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, according to John MacArthur as well, John MacArthur would say, if you are not a disciple, you are not a Christian. But does Paul say, does Paul call on people to be saved? not to be disciples can you think of a verse is there any mention in Romans 10 9 and 10 about being a disciple in Romans 10 9 and 10 or is he talking about being saved Acts chapter 16 verse 30 you guys familiar with that Acts chapter 16 verse 30, the Philippian jailer, there was an earthquake and they were still all there in the prison. They called out to him, do not kill yourself. And he ran into the apostles there and said, what must I do, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Did he say anything about being a disciple? So what is your conclusion then? What would you say if somebody says, can I be a Christian and not be a disciple? This is just like turmoil, isn't it? Like, well, I don't know. What is the answer? What's the proper answer? Okay, hey, let me ask you a question now. We're talking about Jesus sanctification here. Pardon me? Jesus wants me to be a disciple. Yes. That's correct. What if you're not? Yeah, well, <laughs> he still wants you to be. <laughs> yeah, you <still> <laughs> Does God want you to know that you are saved? Yes. If you're a disciple, are you saved? Yes. How do you know that? If if you're a Christian, God wants you to be saved, correct? If you're a Christian, how do you know that you're saved if you're a Christian? And, and I'm using that in opposition to a disciple. They're really synonymous. But we make the separation here because it is done theologically in all the churches. If you read on the Internet, can you be a Christian and not be a disciple, I mean, they, it is just ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And people are divisive. Well, I think if you're not a disciple, you haven't been saved. I agree with that. What about if you're just a Christian and not a disciple, have you been saved? You probably wouldn't be sitting here tonight if you Do you think churches are filled with unsaved people that call themselves Christians? Yes what if they've said the prayer? Yeah, do they have fruit? Yeah, do they have fruit? You will know them by Well, you'll know them by the fruit, right? Will every Christian eventually produce fruit? Okay. So so what is the verdict? Can you be a dis- Okay, what is what is the first fruit of the spirit? Say again. What is the first fruit of the spirit? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who have followed Christ have crucified the flesh. So that's the that's the fruit of the spirit, right? It doesn't mean there's actually, well, I'm going to... Lay tile today at the church. He's not talking about that. The first thing you're going to see is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. You're going to see those things manifest in the life of the individual. If you've ever seen somebody who's been given to anger all of their life and then they turn into this puppy dog, they were a mongrel that was riding a motorcycle around town and now they've given up the motorcycle and they want to know about Jesus Christ and his love. You know that that person has been saved because of the love that's been demonstrated. But when it comes down to the question, Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? I think we would all say yes. At least there's no evidence that an individual who says they're a Christian is a disciple. Like what percentage of Christians do you think there are in this country? You know, 75 to 95% of the people, not 95, maybe I think it's 85% of the people say that they are Christians. Do you believe that 85 or 75% of the people in this country are Christians? Somewhere between 75 and 85, depending on which research firm you go to, they, people, yes, people claim that they are Christians. We would be rocking and rolling for Christ, right? We would. So the evidence is in the pudding. That's not the case. It's probably below 50%, right? Right? So if that's the case, we have to kind of make a decision on this and be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within. When somebody comes to me or comes to you and says, "Well, I'm a Christian, but you know, I don't attend church and I don't read my Bible, and you know, I just I'm not into that organized religion thing." I ask them, "Have you been saved?" Well, seventy-five to eighty-five percent of the people in the country will say yes; they've been saved, they've gone forward. I can remember my own father when I gave him the gospel. He says, "Don't worry about me." I went forward when I was 13 years old in church. My mom, your grandma, took you there, or took me there, and and I got saved there. But he never set foot in a church for church service as long as I was alive. You know, so yeah, I look at that and go, "Man, is he saved? Is he not saved?" And so I'm, I'm going to give you this now. I don't know if somebody can be a Christian and not be a disciple and still be saved? I don't know. I can't discern that. Only the Spirit of God can discern that. My point would be, remove all doubt. Don't walk in such a way where you're questioning it. Give your life fully to to Christ. Reckless abandonment is what you want. Remember last week, I said there was one thing that... was not even more important than following Christ. What was that one thing? It was a four-letter word. What? Food. Not even food is as important as following Christ. Not even our life, which that's the extension of what that means. Your life is not even as important as following Christ. So the person who was on the fence all the time, Say, get off the fence already, you know, come on, make yourself into a disciple. Let me help you become a disciple. That's what we're supposed to do. It's our job to do that. So if you see somebody sitting on the fence, what are we supposed to do? Grab them, grab them by the nap of the neck and say, come on, you're going with me. We are going to be disciples together that's our job this isn't given to the pastors in Matthew chapter 28 it didn't say and to all the pastors who shall come go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them it says no you the disciples who were there he said you go and make disciples so I'm glad we cleared that up I don't know if if, if, I'm not even going to attempt to answer that just remove all doubt and tell the people that when they ask Say, well, do you think you're a Christian? Has God changed your life? Are you working for him and for the kingdom to come and forsaking this life? Is that what you're doing? Then if you are, great. Let's go on. Where am I? Six. Oh, true disciples follow Christ's teaching. By the way, at uh, the God questions... That that I just read to you, a recommended resource that they put down was The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where he says, just be obedient, right? And then you remove all doubt. Now, going on. Going on under the unwillingness of the Pharisees. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, by the way, that particular verse, verse 35, once you become a child of God, can you unbecome a child of God? No. Once you become, Jesus says it right there, but a son belongs to it forever. So there's no turning back once you become a believer so, so the son sets you free you will be free indeed i know you are abraham's descendants yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word i'm telling you what i have seen in the father's presence and you do and and you do what you have heard from your father abraham is our father they answered do you see the sarcastic Kurt, response here. Abraham is our father. They answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do the things Abraham did. Have you ever seen several Jews get together and have a conversation about a controversial subject? Oh, if there are three Jews, there's four opinions. Is the way that it works. And when the, the Jewish people themselves, they are a passionate people as a whole they're very passionate and so if they hold to something you know they're they and they'll start on a rant in another world no it's not possible you know and then they'll they, they will go back and forth so this is what jesus is doing now jesus was jewish and it, you know i had one pastor tell me once that if they weren't god's people the jews would to him is what he said They would be an obnoxious people, unworthy of love, because of the way that they are. But they are God's people, and God loves them. God even called them a bunch of stiff-necked people, right? And so that is their temperament. It's like if you go to Boston. In Boston, they have a tendency to yell, at least some of the older guys. When I went there once, the guys were yelling. That was just their temperament. That's what they did. They weren't soft-spoken. If you go up to Denmark or Norway... Can you see a Norwegian person yelling? I mean, they're all very calm, very kind. Yeah, yes. And Swedish. You know, they're just, every Swedish foreign exchange student that's ever come over here has just been mellower than mellow. Right? And so there are certain demeanors in the people, in their genetics. And Jesus was one of these people, he had the Jewish gene in him so to speak and these guys are going back and forth we have abraham as our father if you were abraham's children jesus said then you would do the things abraham did as it is you are determined to kill me a man who has told you the truth that i heard from god abraham did not do such things and so this bantering is going back and forth we want to have in our mind that abraham did not do such things and jesus would sit there No, it's it's not like that that is not the Jewish people. I'm sure that's not what's taking place here. It goes on to say, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would, you would love me, for I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Now, would he be saying that calmly? there is you belong to your father the devil oh man i would wish to be there during this conversation i'm sure god will have the ability to replay the videotape you know and let us see the bible as it unfolded he goes on to say he was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth For there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks his native tongue for he is a liar and the father of lies yet because I tell you you do not believe me exclamation point. See even the translators notice there's an exclamation point here and so it is a heated conversation going back and forth. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth why don't you believe me? He goes on to say he who belongs to God hears what God said. The reason I do not the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? If, if somebody back then called somebody else a Samaritan, it's equivalent to calling somebody a Corinthian. A Corinthian was a debauched, fully sinful individual back in the time of Christ. They, they were horrible, and, and so it's like an epithet, right? Right? Now, I have Jewish blood in me. Uh, My grandfather was a full Jew. Uh, My mother was a half Jew. That's enough blood to put me in the concentration camps during World War II. I would have been one who would have been killed. Even if I wasn't a practicing Jew, I had the bloodline. If somebody came along and called me a miser or a... And I'm not sure if it. Some of these are cuss words, and so I want to make sure I don't use those cuss words. But you, you get what an epithet is? Like, for instance, um, there's a term for uh, white people. It's called a cracker, right? That's an epithet. Now, a cracker used to refer to somebody during the Civil War era, era that would take a whip and crack the whip on the slaves. That's why they were called crackers. So if somebody called me a cracker, that's an epithet. They are turning to Jesus and saying, you Samaritan. Not only are you Samaritan, but you're demon-possessed too. So they are trying their best to insult God is what they're doing. He's already said, I am, twice to them. And he He's just listening. Oh, you Samaritan and demon-possessed person. Abraham died so that... so. And so did the prophets, yet you say that if anyone, did I, no, I didn't get the right verse. Verse 49, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. This is just going back. Could you be a person that just go?" What is going on here? You're going back and forth with this argument and Jesus is just slaughtering them in the argument that he's given. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Verse 53. He died and so did the prophets. What do you think, or who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know him, or I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born. And there it is. I am. Just in your face, I am God is what he's saying to them. And that's what they understood. Verse 59 at this they picked up stones to stone him but jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds what a conversation i would have like i said loved to have been there to see this and then he doesn't get stoned they can't get him it's not yet his time they can't do anything to him by the time they got him to crucify him they were so mad that's why christ got beat the way that he was they wanted to take their vengeance out on him. Satan was occupying the hearts and minds of these Jewish leaders at the time, and they just wanted to torture him beyond no end. They didn't want to accept who he was. So self-righteousness will keep us from knowing the truth. That's number one. They thought they were something, referring to the Jews. They thought they were free. They thought Jesus was demon-possessed. They thought they knew more than Christ. James 4.10 says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4.6 says, Says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Secondly, the Jews sought justification through affiliation. Another way to say it, pedigree does not bring purity before God. It doesn't matter who your parents are, who you associate with, who your family is. It does not mean you are pure before God. And they were referring to the fact that they were Abraham's children. And by that, they thought they had privilege and justification before God. And Jesus said, nope, Abraham is not your father. Satan is your father. He was just finger in your eye. Yeah, Steve. That was the curse after the crucifixion that the eyes of the Jews would be blinded. Right. Now there are some Jews that come out and become Messianic Jews and that's great. But they will at one point in history. Their eyes will be opened. Do you guys know what it is? When in, uh, Say it nice and loud Eric. The, the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 9 when that happens it's going to be like scales fall off of their eyes, they're going to realize that Jesus was the Messiah and that this guy is the Antichrist and that's when God says flee flee to the mountains, get out of here as fast as you can, don't go back in your house for anything, get out because the Antichrist is going to wipe out most of the world at that particular point so that's when it happens. Number three, Jesus wanting to honor the Father brought jeers from the Jews. The world will hate you, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands to the end will be saved. Firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. He doesn't say necessarily stand and fight because persecution here means death. Mark 13, 13 and Luke 21, 17 says the same thing. All men will hate you because of me. They wanted to kill him and stop him permanently. So God is merciful. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus and the Father have a relationship. The Jews never had a relationship with the Father. They rejected the Son. The Jews sought justification based on birthright. And all of that was false. And we need to walk in humility. If we do that, God will lift us up. That's what he says in his word any questions it's all good let's pray Father we thank you for your word how it just reveals what was taking place and I ask Lord that at some point in the future we all get a chance to visit Israel again and we can see where these conversations were happening and just Lord that you would bless it to our memories if you give us and grant us the opportunity to go and we pray for that And also, Lord, help us to just retain your information from your word. Help us to make these words our own that we read. Make these thoughts. Make these stories our own so that we can communicate them to others. And with your help, we'll do so. In Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. God bless you guys.